This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 1st, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Hopes are dim for a more trade-friendly White House in 2017. Phil Levy, a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, argues the Trans-Pacific Partnership may be flawed, but on balance is beneficial to trade across the Pacific. We spoke during a Cato Institute conference on the TPP held yesterday. Barack Obama has not been a very good salesman on trade. He has pitched his support of trade agreements in the context of sort of a zero-sum game where either we win and China loses or China wins and we lose, which, of course, uh, from the perspective of uh, economics and wealth creation globally, that's just not the way to sell trade. I agree with you. I think it's been very problematic the way he's approached this. Um, Problems in in two dimensions. One, he hasn't really made the case at all on basically the virtues of trade, what what one gains from trade. Part of that is he ran for office pitching himself against that. He, He talked about withdrawal from NAFTA. He talked about how NAFTA had caused the loss of a million jobs. Those were fallacious arguments when he made them. But he hasn't – well, he sort of reversed himself on other arguments that he made during the campaign. He never quite reversed himself on that one. So on economic grounds, the problem with his pitch is he's saying past trade agreements were bad, but sign this one, but, but you know, prove this one. On the foreign policy argument, so then he's left turning to foreign policy because he won't make the economic case as much. And this is pitting it as sort of the U.S. against China, who will write the rules I think it is fair to say that what happens with the TPP will have a big effect on U.S. influence in the region. And it is true that China would be happy to step up and take some of the influence that the U.S. would lose should this fail. Um, I think the who will write the rules is a little problematic since China has actually been very reluctant to write rules, even when we've wanted them to. And trade has always been an area where Republicans broadly would have been happy to go along with some sort of robust trade deal that the president uh, carried to other countries and and tried to sell. Yes. If you look at uh, sort of post-World War II era, there was a time when Republicans were the protectionist party. But if you look at the post-World War II era, often it was bipartisan support, but you certainly had fairly strong Um, but not uniform Republican support for this. One of the problems with the way the president approached the TPP negotiations was it was not a master class in how to build and maintain a coalition. So often it seemed there was greater concern uh, in emerging with the most progressive trade agreement ever, um, which was meant to appeal to Democratic luminaries such as Representative Sandy Levin, um, who was never going to support the trade agreement, while irritating or alienating some very important figures who had been um, key trade proponents in the Congress, such as uh, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch. So you've seen it is true that Republicans carried the president's water on things like trade promotion authority. When you looked at the vote in the House, you had, I think it was in the order of 190 Republicans in favor and 28. Democrats. So they had been there for him. In principle, you've had greater reluctance to embrace what was brought back from the TPP negotiations. There is plenty to criticize, of course, from a free market perspective. The uh, line around here is you have to start from the perspective that trade is good and uh, you know benefits both parties or it won't take place. And um, 
But there is plenty to criticize in the TPP. What are your chief concerns about it? Well, and I should say before delving into the concerns that I do think the TPP is worth doing. Um, it, it has its flaws, um, but on balance, if I had a vote on the matter, I would I would vote for it. Now, what are my concerns? One of my main concerns is well, a lot of them sort of go into the bundle of they didn't go far enough, um, which I think is similar to some of the analysis that has been done here at Cato, um, that you you look – I think it would have been a very, very good idea had they pursued a uniformity in market access where rather than striking essentially bilateral deals with lots of the participants, you had done one deal that everyone would sign up to. Not only is that – would that push for economic efficiency rather than sort of picking winners and losers among countries, but it also would have meant that any newcomers to the agreement – read China um, – would have been faced with essentially a fait accompli. Here it is. Here's the deal. You take it or you leave it. As it is now, you have individually negotiated um, agreements. There's rules that apply broadly, but on some of the market access. And that means that should, should this pass and should China be interested in the future, instead of saying, we must sign up to this, it will be, we must now start our negotiations to see what we can get. Right. So it's... Uh individuated agreements among countries built within this larger structure with some rules that apply to everybody. And, and there was there's a political challenge there that the U.S. had sort of failed to live up to some of its free trade ideas in earlier agreements, notably, for example, with Australia on sugar. That And to have gone for uniformity would have meant taking on some of those liberalization challenges. And they didn't do it. And that was unfortunate. There is a lot of protectionism that the United States foists on uh, producers of products and even services uh, from other countries. And that carries over into trade agreements as well. What do you think is one of the lowest hanging pieces of fruit for improving uh, the United States trade relationships around the world that the United States can essentially do unilaterally? Oh, looking around the world, I think if we did things like cutting our agricultural subsidies, these are sort of market distorting that sort of are seen as doing damage and do damage to a lot of countries around the world. That would be one that would help balance budgets and, and improve our standing around the world right away. Numerous reasons to do that one. Yes. Uh, any else? Oh, I think you, you, we have – the U.S. has on balance done a fairly good job of liberalization. But you have sectors where some serious protection remains. So textiles and apparel is, is a very notable one where we put very restrictive rules of origin. And it's particularly problematic because often it hits, as, as Ed Gresser has shown, it often hits the lowest income segments of the population. This is not uh, you know, usually your fancy expensive clothing. This, these are your cheap T-shirts and the stuff you buy the kids when they're heading back to school. Um, it makes that more expensive. It also tends to block countries that are starting to develop, and this is often the lowest rung of the ladder, where you can sort of get in there and be a good textiles or apparel producer. So I think our approach to that sector has been particularly pernicious. It's, I mean, textiles are historically the first step of industrialization. That's right. Textiles, agriculture. Yes, for industrialization, absolutely. Textiles. This is how you kind of get going with this sort of thing. And we have been reluctant to exhibit much generosity there. What are the costs and benefits that you would associate with something that I pitch to our guys here all the time, which is uh, essentially unilateral disarmament with respect to trade barriers? I think 
Well, to some extent, we have done this. We have not gotten to perfect unilateral disarmament, but uh, as Ambassador Froman described in some remarks, the U.S. average tariff is under 1.5%. So we can identify some sectors, agricultural sectors, the textiles and apparel sector, um, where the U.S. You know, has not come around to this. But we've done reasonably well. I think there is still a value to having these agreements because often one of the purposes that these trade agreements sh- serve is they let developing countries who have had very wayward economic policies in the past make credible commitments to new policies. So, And often a great deal of what they deal with is not just how high are our barriers, but things like what are the rules that we're going to have governing investment or services. So I am in favor of us moving largely towards well, – I'm in favor of us moving all the way towards liberalization. We've done a great deal of that movement that doesn't obviate the need for these agreements. The political challenges to freer trade, and depending on how you feel about it, you can can or cannot include TPP in that in that category. But uh, you, on balance, you say you support it. I do. The two leading candidates for president, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, have have been at various times either uh, two faced or just ignorant about how trade works about how these negotiations go. ignorant, respectively? <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave, leave that to the audience to decide. But the, the idea is that, um, well, as like Barack Obama, he has been a, a weak defender when it comes to uh, trade liberalization, but Hillary Clinton has been as weak or weaker this time around as, as she was in 2008, and Donald Trump has been almost openly opposed to uh, trade agreements and has heartily endorsed very high tariffs on basic consumer goods that uh, most Americans would enjoy low prices on. Yes. Well, I think that Donald Trump has been thoroughly misguided on these issues, um, willfully ignorant, um, as it were, because it would be hard for him to miss just the the range of errors that are coming forth in, for example, his recent trade speech. And it, it seems that, that those opinions, at least with respect to trade on Donald Trump's part, are some of the more deeply held opinions that he has. In the 80s, he argued about Japan being ripping us off, quote unquote, well, he, he's uh, among been other things. Yeah. Yes, you got even points for that. Um, the interesting, so I agree with you, this, is, this has been a very difficult climate. It has, you have not seen a great deal of political courage. And one of the things that's really unfortunate about this is we did, I work at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We did some public opinion work about a year ago before these, the TPP or the TTIP, which is also out there with transatlantic negotiations, before these were even concluded, if you asked the public, how do you feel about these trade agreements, you get remarkably positive responses. Before they could even look at the details, you got generally positive responses, responses that were in the 60 to 70 percent positive range. And the curious thing was that the 70 percent tended to be more to the Democrats and the 60 percent was more characterizing the Republican sentiment. And what we've seen is that particularly on the Democratic side, um, the, the role of interest groups is sufficiently strong, organized labor, that Secretary Clinton felt compelled to turn on an agreement that she had repeatedly praised as the gold standard. Um, and you are seeing from almost no one any sort of full-throated defense of trade, despite the key role that it plays in ensuring our prosperity. 
Phil Levy is Senior Fellow on the Global Economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>